This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. <laughs> Tranquil abiding helps us calm the waters of the mind allowing us to experience truth more clearly. We can learn a lot through studying the nature of the mind and reality, but we can't stop there. Tranquil abiding helps us to see for ourselves through stilling the mind and experiencing insight. Through connecting with others as a compassionate act, Tonglen helps us feel how we're not separate from the rest of the ocean. This balance is important. The Tibetan scriptures speak of many pairs, in Why Bother, the definition of enlightenment is cleansing our obscurations and fully maturing our Buddha qualities. Tranquil abiding helps with the former, Tonglen with the latter. Another pair is wisdom, tranquil abiding, and compassion, Tonglen. Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism, meets us where we are and supports us in our journey from there. So it is with Tonglen. The word Tonglen means sending and receiving in Tibetan. Valeria Telles interviews Lama Tsomo, the author of Wisdom and Compassion, Starting with Yourself, Ancient Wisdom for Our Times, Tibetan Buddhist Practice Series, Book 2. Lama Tsomo is a spiritual teacher, author, and co-founder of Namchak Foundation, which preserves and shares Tibetan Buddhist practice in accessible, contemporary ways. She dedicates the majority of her time and resources to sharing the teachings and practices of the Namchak tradition, a branch of Tibetan Buddhism. Utilizing her psychology background, Lama Tsomo works to make it easier for Westerners to bridge contemplative practice and modern life. She is particularly passionate about teaching young people and supporting those working for positive social change. Fascinated by science from an early age, Lama Tsomo's teachings often reference the science behind meditation and the proven neurological impact. She holds an MA in counseling psychology and is the author of Why is the Dalai Lama Always Smiling? An Introduction and Guide to Tibetan Buddhist Practice and co-author of The Lotus and the Rose a conversation between Tibetan Buddhism and mystical Christianity, and the newly released Taking a Breath Meditation Journal. Meet Lama Tsomo at namchak.org. Here is the interview with Lama Tsomo. In your own words, who is Lama Tsomo? 
Well, on the mundane level, I'm this person who was born in America to a Jewish family who has searched for a long time for ways that we could be happy, finding the methods and uh, trying to push away suffering. But I really think everybody wants to be happy and wants to push away suffering. And the more we try to push away suffering and draw happiness to us, the harder we work at it, the more we discover we just really can't control that. We can't always be happy and we can't always push away the suffering, but we keep trying and trying, even in our dreams at night. Those dramas in the dreams are more of the same. And so I became particularly interested in that because I thought, well, really the bottom line, no matter what I do, is happiness. And also I found that what made me happy was helping other people in that pursuit. And so I studied the best of the West, psychology, and then turned to meditative practices. And after some searching and really sounding the note out there in the universe, you know, calling my teacher kind of thing, I didn't really care what kind of uh, meditation practice or spiritual tradition, just so that it was the right teacher for me. And I found that person and he trained me and I went through years worth of uh, meditation retreats going from one level to the next until he, uh, my kids like to say he laminated me. Uh Yeah, (laughs) that's cute. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And so now I'm, uh, you know, I've got these two names, Linda Pritzker and Lama Tsomo. That's a beautiful story, though, and it's so true that we pursue happiness and we push away suffering, pain, anything that doesn't feel good. But life, it's everything. That's one interesting dance. I love that word that I often use. So it's learning to dance with the light and the dark, with everything. And with that in mind, how do we learn to dance with thoughts, with negative thoughts and dark thoughts? Mm-hmm. Well, uh So these thoughts come and go and feelings come and go. But strangely, in English, we say, I am angry. I am bad. (laughs) So true. (laughs) And, And then we think this is a permanent state of mind. And of course, it never is. Yeah, so true. Right? Yeah. And the other thing is that uh, since we're paying attention to the surface of the ocean, we're never tuning into the depths of the ocean where it's much more constant. Uh, in other words, uh, if I can use this metaphor, I like this metaphor a lot. The source of all of us can be seen as like this great big ocean that is 100% aware, 100% connected because it's the source of everything, all of us. And so, of course, it's uh, pure love, pure compassion, pure joy. And there's no need for anything because it's everything right there. So we're, each of us, waves that this ocean loves to create. Each of us is unique because no two waves are exactly the same. And yet when we look inside, we're all made of ocean. I think if we can learn to, uh, instead of just looking at the surface and freaking out at all the ups and downs, we can begin to understand the nature of the ocean and feel how we're ocean too. And I like to say, mm-hmm. we can learn to surf. It seems to me from what you said that the first step is not to identify with the thoughts, is that none 
attachment to thoughts. It doesn't have to be my thoughts. They are just thoughts. Would that be the first step? (laughs) That's right. Non-identification with the thoughts and with the thinker. And so, yeah, the early uh, foundational meditations have to do with uh, really examining what is this thought, looking straight at it instead of just being entranced by it and following after it and making movies around it. Mm, (laughs) So looking straight at it. And then also we can turn the lens on ourselves and say, well, what is this phenomenon we call the thinker, the one who cooked up that thought? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) And so that's quite a profound uh, journey to go on, to look, you know, behind the appearance and behind that one and that one until you've really peeled the layers of the onion. And then you come to the ocean, right? You have to, where else will you end up but the source? And that's our true essence. That's what we are. True. So Uh. when you first asked who is Lama Tsomo, mm-hmm. <laughs> I wanted to answer with that. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, right. Ah, what a beautiful answer. I know you use this beautiful metaphor of the ocean, but that's not possible to understand with the intellectual mind as much as we try to think that way. Oh, I am the ocean, but how come? I have a body and all these thoughts and all these things right. that I have to do. So we are not our thoughts. We are not the thinker. Did you find a way of transmitting that message, communicating that message in a way that the heart understands it? Yeah. So I think the heart understands metaphors better. And so rather than speaking in some kind of scientific terms, well, it's this, this, and this, and making lists and everything, and using something linear, I I think it helps more to have a picture because then contained within the picture can be the feeling that sort of points to the actual experience. And so in the teachings, they say, if you want to, you know, pursue these understandings, there's a sort of a cycle of three things you need to do. Listen, contemplate, and meditate. And what they mean by that is, you know, take in, so can be reading or listening, uh, but, you know, get some input because, yeah. you know, we could use some help. Uh, <laughs> true. <laughs> so true. <laughs> and uh, oh, yeah, so good to get some input. And yeah. then chew on it. Contemplate. Don't just swallow it whole. Don't take it on blind faith, but chew on it. That's how the Buddhists um, see that. They're not big on blind faith. Okay, so listen, contemplate. And the last one is meditate. And the word for meditate is, uh, well, there are two words that you could use. One is Nyamlin, which means uh, to gain experience. So you gain direct experience. You've been pointed in a direction. And now, you know, as you sit on the cushion day after day after day, because, you know, we've got some very well-worn habits, those pathways are very strong. So we might not experience, you know, direct, pure reality right away. We've got this warped windshield that's all splattered and colored and all sorts of things. And then we look out and we say, that's what reality looks like. Yeah, so it's going to take true. a little while, <laughs> so yeah, to kind of clean that up and straighten it and everything through meditation practice that uh, it almost does undoing rather than doing. So it's it's taking away those layers of habit until you can see directly for yourself. And so then you're having an experience of it. But the other word for meditation is gom, which means uh, getting used to. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, because otherwise we get off off the cushion and we go right back into our everyday habits. But you know, can we do it enough? And even during the day, how can we carry it into the activities of our day so that we get used to this new point of view? 
this new, almost like ch- it's changing channels, isn't it? Yeah. It really feels like that. It's um, a shift in perspective. It's seen the world, mm-hmm. ourselves and life and others with different lens. It really, really feels like that once that shift takes place. And I wonder for beginners, people who never meditated before, what is the first step in meditating, learning to meditate for those who never done it? Um, you know, just getting started is so simple. Um, my my teacher in his early teachings with me, he said, it's actually so simple, you can't even believe it. Mm-hmm. You think, no, that yeah. it can't right. be. <laughs> yeah. He said, it's simple, yeah. but not easy, uh-huh. you know, to, to live from that place. Even to glimpse it at first is not easy, but uh, to live from that place also not so easy because we've covered it over with a lot of complexity. So we begin with shamatha, which is um, also known as tranquil abiding or calm abiding. And it helps our minds to just slow down a bit. And every once in a while, there might be a few more gaps between the frames of the movie. And it's in those gaps where eventually we may just you know, catch a glimpse of that very simple reality as it really is on its own terms. But certainly just the slowing down feels like a real vacation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> it really does. Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, you can go to the beach. <laughs> yeah, you can go to the beach. You yeah. bring your busy mind and, uh, you know, you're fussing with the sun stuff and you're getting sand in this thing and, you know, you're thinking about what that person said to you and now what you, what are you going to say back to them and all of that. Well, you went to the trouble to go to the beach, but where is your mind? Yeah. Yeah. You brought it with you, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's just all the same stuff is grinding around in your mind. Whereas if you hadn't gone to the beach, but you had sat there and had a nice meditation, pausing in between the uh, out breath and the in breath, so that there's absolutely stillness. It, physiologically, it makes it easier to really be still when all movement stops, even breathing, for just a moment. And I savor those moments, you know. And then the slowing of the breathing, it's naturally going to be slower when you're sitting there doing that. Um, you just find your mind begins to slow down. Uh, and you're giving it something to... Uh, hang on to, which is called an object of support. And it can be something as simple as the procession of sensations you feel as you're breathing, you know, whatever's happening in your abdomen and your ribs and maybe your mouth, nose, you know, that sort of thing. You just notice the sensations, whatever they are, without names on them. You know, you don't want to have this radio going on in your head. Oh, uh, now I'm inhaling. Uh, yes. <laughs> now I can feel coolness in my nose. Uh, yeah, you know, yes, right. Narration. <laughs> yeah, right. But can you just experience it directly? Just the way you speak, it already brings me into that place. And oh. when you said about the breathing, there is a, a moment where there is a pause, even between breath, the inhale and exhale. That I never heard before. I mean, you hear but not here at the same time. You're accessing the absolute reality, if this is what we can call it. You probably have a different name. Uh, or seeing life as it is, as you said, or reality yeah. as it is. So that I never heard before, Lama Salmo. It's quite delicious. 
you know, we're, we're going for that, you know, pure stillness and wanting to savor that. And so I, I almost naturally just stop for a moment and savor that. And it feels wonderful. It's so much more peaceful than, like I said, you know, how I often am at the beach. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, it very much sounds like and it feels like even to think about it. That's interesting, even the thought of it. I wonder where, if there's a, a point where we, we don't need meditation anymore. Now we are bringing that direct experience to our daily lives, doing what we do every day talking to here yes. to you now and cleaning watching washing the dishes or watching TV which I not often do talking to my husband and playing with my dog is that practice that has a destination which it is a transition into daily lives or this is something that we practice to the end of our lives in the body uh, well the Buddha did practice uh, all of his life uh, even after he attained enlightenment um, and I've always wondered about that. I, I thought, well, he didn't need to. So I wonder if he was uh, showing an example or something, or if he just did it for the sheer joy of it. I don't know. But I, he had crossed that point of no return where he couldn't see from any other point of view but the whole ocean. He could see his, his waveness, but he could, you know, at the same time, he was holding the whole ocean. So we do uh, in... Vajrayana in Tibetan Buddhism, especially, want to make sure that we keep in mind this is practice, but then the main event is still our living our lives. So, like if you're in a band, you know, it's a good idea if everybody um, goes home and practices their instrument, gets really good at it, practices the song they're going to do together, and then when they come together, uh, and play, it can sound wonderful, but they'll also have to learn to play together. So they have to rehearse together. Then uh, they can do a wonderful performance, and the performance is an important part too. So if I keep with that analogy, and I do have music in my background, so I'm not surprised when thinking of this. <laughs> uh, but if we, you know, keep all of that in an analogy, then everybody doing meditation on their cushion at home uh, helps them to be less reactive in life, less coming with that knee-jerk reaction and able more to hold that whole ocean point of view that includes the other person. And we practice compassion, and so that muscle is stronger. And so even in the midst of a challenging situation, I myself have seen a difference, an evolution in how I work with it, even in the moment. And uh, one of my mantras in shamatha, when I'm sitting on the cushion and thought comes in and I'm starting to get fascinated by it and I go after it, make a movie, all of a sudden I think, oh, wait a second, I don't have to think about that right now. That's my mantra. <laughs> I don't have to think about it. No. And then I found myself in the midst of a situation where somebody was saying something really kind of nasty, you know, ill will coming toward me. I, in that moment, I thought I could feel the anger sort of knee jerk reaction ready to come. But I had also available this other choice where that's what came to me again. I don't have to think, I don't have to get angry at this right now. And that allowed me to navigate the situation very differently. 
Yeah. And incidentally, I felt better. It makes a lot of sense. It resonates true to me. And I often wonder why some of us are open and willing to engage in these practices and some of us are not. Well, I think there are a lot of reasons why, you know, everybody is different and coming from different stories, life stories. Um, So it may be, I know that some people have come to it because their normal way of doing things isn't working and they're unhappy. And it's through unhappiness and sometimes even desperation that they're looking for a different way. So whatever resistance they might have or just the unfamiliarity of it for Westerners, you know, it's not like all Westerners grow up learning meditation in school, you know, so we'd have to seek it out. So that might be one reason why people seek it out. It's why people seek out a lot of things that otherwise they wouldn't take the trouble to do. If everything's going okay, then we just sort of keep doing what we're doing and we're, we're kind of lazy. <laughs> you know, why do something different? So uh, I think that can be a reason. For me, I definitely was interested in this pursuit of happiness and I was also fascinated with how the mind works. Even as a kid, I was fascinated with how the mind works. I remember on a camping trip when I was 15, sitting in a tree, reading a textbook on Freud. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I know, but I thought it was fascinating. He was, you know, dividing the psyche into these different, you know, parts. How do they relate to each other and all this? I thought, wow, is that all going on inside our minds? I thought that was fascinating. Ah, When you say that, that makes me think about that life does everything such a beautiful way. It inspires us through thoughts Thoughts, they're not who we are, but they can come from a source of inspiration, of, um, yeah, some call divine inspiration, or um, we can have so many names, God. And then going back to that topic of why do some of us choose to engage in these practices, to have a more loving, peaceful experience in the human body, that's interesting how we learn and we are comfortable with pain. Well, I don't know if it's, that we're comfortable with pain, but uh, I think something you said earlier, we don't know anything else. You know, we've, we've gotten so deep in those particular mental patterns and ruts. I, I remember, uh, you know, all of these things are heightened when you're in long-term retreat. So in one retreat, oh, and, and the practices uh, heighten everything too, believe me. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> so you put yourself in a container and then you pour in the practices and stir. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it it can get pretty, pretty interesting. Yes. So one thing I noticed was that my mind kept going on these same tracks. And I was like, I'm bored with this. I mean, it's not even interesting to me anymore. But my mind is just doing this because it's used to doing this. It's just going in that same rut. I I don't know how to, I'm trying to think of if animals, you know, like pace back and forth in a cage, let's say, and they just keep pacing back and forth and back and forth. Now, they could do other movements or walk in other directions or something, but they just pace back and forth and back and forth and just wear that path down. Uh, and my mind was doing that, and I was seeing it doing it. And there were times that I could uh, use the practice to uh, pull myself out of it and into a whole different experience. Um, but then if I wasn't, you know, constantly able to hold my attention, which of course I wasn't, <laughs> you know, then my mind would tend to 
float back to its familiar habits. And I'd be like, oh, there we are again. But those moments of going, oh, there we are again. And oh, yeah, I was meditating. That's another one I say practically every time on the cushion. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I was meditating. I wasn't supposed to think about what was for dinner. (laughs) You know, in those moments, we're practicing what's known as meta awareness, which is a good thing. And before we ever pursued meditation, how often do we have that level of uh, self-awareness? So normally in that moment, when people catch themselves in that distraction, they beat themselves up and they say, oh, I'm a terrible meditator. I'm never going to, you know, and all this kind of thing. I can't be perfect. So, but rather than taking it as an occasion for beating yourself up, you could take it as an occasion to pat yourself on the head or sort of like your, you know, little puppy that you're training, pat it on the head and say, hey, you know this. And now you get to sit in that wonderful, delicious shamatha or, you know, whatever other practice you're doing that's actually quite delicious when you're not all distracted and everything. And so there are two great moments each time you get distracted. One is, oh, hey, I noticed. Yay. And the second one is I get to now just sit in that you know, deliciously peaceful spot. You know, and now I come back to it freshly. Sometimes when you stay in it for a long time, it gets sort of dull and murky. But each time you come to it fresh, it's especially delicious and it's actually more to the point for the meditation. So those are two moments to celebrate, not uh, for beating yourself up. And incidentally, beating yourself up is still ego fascination, isn't it? (laughs) Mm, Oh, yes. This is a good time to talk about the uh, self-compassion meditation, Lama Tselma. Yeah, so in the book, Wisdom and Compassion, I bring one of the very favorite um, Tibetan practices that's quite easy to do. If you know how to breathe and you can imagine somebody in your mind, which we do in our internal conversations all the time, right? Then you can do this practice. (laughs) And um, it starts with uh, cultivating compassion for ourselves. And this is something different for, I've noticed, for most Westerners compared with most um, Asians, certainly Tibetans, that we don't start out having a lot of compassion for ourselves or love for ourselves or thinking we're worthy of compassion. So we, I think, need to emphasize that part of uh, the practice is called Tonglen, which means um, sending and receiving. Because what we're doing is we're taking away the suffering and we're bringing happiness uh, and we start with ourselves. So we think about something that we're suffering from that's up for us right now. And we uh, I'll go into the visualization later, but just let me say that the overall path of the whole practice is we start by doing this practice for ourselves because that's going to be the basis for real strong compassion for others. If, if it's only like intellectual compassion for ourselves, how is it going to be for everybody else? And this is not an intellectual exercise. So we uh, step it out then once we've established that for ourselves. And we actually get to hold ourselves in compassion, which is a beautiful healing thing. Uh, and sometimes I, you know, I have tears because I've been holding myself together trying to, you know, just get on with my day and this kind of thing. And finally, I get to relax and be held while at the same time I get to do the holding. 
It is possible. And then uh, we think of somebody we care about that we just easily feel compassion for. And we think of them and maybe they have a similar kind of suffering and we try to stick with a theme. So it's kind of a coherent session. And so we see them in front of us and we do this practice with them and we take away their suffering and then we replace it with happiness. And then we think of more and more people and then it gets to be whole groups of people who have some similar kind of suffering. And then soon it's everybody all over the world everybody in the universe, whoever is suffering. And we think at some point, and time isn't linear, at some point, everybody has suffered something similar, maybe even worse version. And we know for ourselves that this is terrible. We don't want that for them. And so now we're feeling strong compassion that we've slowly stepped out from this very real place in ourselves out to finally all and everyone. And so we do this practice for everybody. I love that it starts with self-compassion with um, what is here. And the self-compassion is really for the conditioned self, right? Lama Tsomo, those parts of us that are um, negative or rejecting, whatever it is. That's what I see. The body, the mind, it's so conditioned to everything. It seems like there's another part of me that's trying to uh, hold them together and kind of it's being compassionate toward them. But it's not another self, is it? Well, it's another aspect of ourselves. So, yeah, we might go back to the ocean wave analogy um, and say that the surface part of the wave that has all the little bends and shapes and uh, bits of foam and whatever it is, You know, that's one part. And then there's inside of that wave, which is made of ocean, the water of the ocean. You know, so we have those two parts of ourselves. So through visualization and breathing, just very simple uh, visualization and breathing, we work with those two parts of ourselves in the self-compassion part. And then I think it's more really our ocean part that we're using uh, as we then step it out and have, you know, do the compassion for others. Uh, if, if people actually want to be talked through it, uh, first of all, of course, they can read the book. And then uh, there are recordings of me doing this on the Namchok website. So I, I will tirelessly lead you through it as many times as you click on that video. I think there's more than one. <laughs> oh, wonderful. And I do have the link here of the, the website and I'll have on your podcast profile. So you wrote the book, Wisdom and Compassion, starting with yourself. Ancient wisdom for our times, Tibetan Buddhist practice series. This is a book too. So for a moment, talk to me about the main inspiration and intention of writing your book. Well, it's kind of a funny story. I um, was teaching and these concepts were so unfamiliar to my Western students um, that I found they were asking the same questions again and again. And I thought, you know, if I just write a little pamphlet and I can say, you know, read page 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. You know? And and sometimes having it in writing, you can, you can refer to it again and again, and it somehow sinks in better. Right. So I thought, yeah, I need to write this down. Um, and I, uh, at first I just looked for a book like that. I thought, well, I can just refer people to a book. Wouldn't it be great? And I wasn't really seeing quite what I wanted to see out there. So I thought, oh, okay, well, I'll write the pamphlet. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, 
(laughs) One thing led to another, and it turned into this big book that's actually, it didn't finish. And I knew it was going to be a series. (laughs) And the book was so big that um, people were rather daunted by the book and the subject matter. And the combination was kind of off-putting to people, you know, because it is so new. So uh, I decided to reissue the book and split it in two. Uh, because it naturally split into anyway. There's the first part that's the context piece. And then there's the second part that's the practices. So this is the second part that's the practices. And there are so many of them. One of which you have described earlier, the self-compassion meditation, which the name, it's Dong Lin. Uh, well, it's Dong Lin. And it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't end with um, self-compassion. It starts there, right? And then we step it out. Because uh, we do want to get past our self-absorption and actually want to get past our one-waveness to feeling the whole ocean. And the beautiful thing about stepping it out is then we feel such deep connection with all and everyone. And that's, you know, we all want that. And we don't get nearly enough of it. It seems like it's even, no matter how hard we try, we just can't seem to get as deep a feeling of connection as we all want, because I think we miss being the whole ocean. That's what I think. And so practices like this help us to get back to that place of true connectedness with the whole ocean, which is where we come from. That's home. Yes, a billion times to that truth, the whole ocean. And I wonder how deep can we go (laughs) to uh, find out what is there. But that is uh, in this context of of this reality, there are so many, it seems to be so many of us here, bodies and things. So I love the idea that the practice of meditation can lead us to experience this oneness, that everything is connected, is the ocean. There's no separation, really. And uh, what a wonderful vision. Yes. So uh, one excellent way to affect this whole confused world (laughs) (laughs) is sometimes, uh, as the the, the title of this wonderful book says it, don't just do something, sit there. (laughs) Sometimes the best thing to do is to sit there, do this practice, and make sure that you're coming from that deep ocean place. And then the more you do that, when you get up off the cushion, and especially with this Lojong practice that we also have on our website, uh, with like 10 minute, 15 minutes, uh, every morning kind of inputs from this ancient teaching of Lojong, it's got a little bit of meditation, a little bit of a, like a wise saying that you then take into your life and you use that. Uh, so when life, you know, sort of gets you distracted and it's challenging and it's coming at you, you have this jujitsu you can do yeah. using <laughs> these wise sayings yeah. hmm. and the practice that you've done on the cushion. Oh, I need to go back to it. It, it feels like it. I stopped meditating wow, a long time ago. Yeah, the weaving back and forth between on the cushion and then in life and then on the cushion in life. I think is very strong uh, for moving us forward on the path and causing us to be able to be the most helpful in the world. Talk to me for a moment before, oh, I have so many other questions here, about the Sangha and the learning circles. How do we find them? How can we join them in our cities? Yeah, well, before I get to that, I just want to end 
that last piece that we were talking about, I think of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, who, you know, he's quite active in the world and his actions have an amazing amount of power for a a refugee guy, you know, a refugee monk. It's amazing. And I, they're empowered by his sitting practice and his uh, good actions clear his karmic windshield so that when he sits on the cushion, his practice is strengthened. And so that weaving back and forth and back and forth is quite a powerful combination. Mm, okay. Thank you for that reminder, Lama Nsomo. Yeah. I'll well, go back so, to it. <laughs> you inspired me now <laughs> to go back to meditation. Right. Thank well, you. Well, I get inspired by my teacher and His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Anyway, so uh, yeah, joining uh, learning circles. First of all, it's uh, kind of unusual that in the West, people think of the path as being just sitting alone on a cushion and that it's to be pursued alone. The Buddha in the beginning had talked about the three jewels that we take refuge in, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. So Buddha, enlightened mind, literally means one who's awake. Uh, The Dharma, which is, you know, kind of the, the map for how to get there. And the Sangha, which is your fellow travelers. And we are herd animals. If you've ever been to a rock concert, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, that's good. You see how everybody carries each other along, and nobody would get that excited if they were just alone. They could listen to that same piece of music, and they would not be in the same place whatsoever. So we can actually use that power. We have something called mirror neurons in our brains, and human beings can use that to carry each other along. Uh, when we meditate. So the group meditation can be more strong than individual meditation. But there are aspects to individual meditation that are good too. So you really want both group and individual meditation. But the other thing is in understanding these concepts, it, it really helps not to just to sit in your room and read a book or you know listen to a teacher and then go home and try and figure it out yourself. But how much more, more wonderful it is for everybody to sit in a circle, just a small handful of people. And that's what the learning circles are. And, you know, the same people every week, you know, getting a new input and then saying, well, what do we think of this? And how did it work for you this week? You know, in your actual everyday life, how was your meditation? And everybody talks about it and becomes quite close. And uh, I remember in one that I started years ago, this woman's... Um, sister suddenly died and the whole family got together and she said I was having enough trouble with this as it was but if I hadn't had the practice and the support of my friends in this circle I don't know what I would have done and so I was looking around the room at everybody else thinking how are they handling this what are they doing so in life we need people who we talk about you know important things with we can say what's on our hearts and we also uh, teach practices to help everyone say it in a way that's uh, kind and true and skillful. Uh, so we have Sangha skills. We have something called the Sangha strand. It's one of the strands of learning that goes all the way from beginning to end in our curriculum. Uh, so that we hopefully have um, satisfying, healthy Sangha. And I have to say, we have a lot of happy Sangha members. So the way to start, if somebody's interested, is we have something called uh, meditation in community. And uh, so that's just a way to start at the very beginning. 
and you're in with a class of people on Zoom. So, you know, <laughs> you could be you're living anywhere and uh, it's a six week course. And then uh, people almost always end up signing up for the next six weeks. And then at the end of that, they're like, well, now we don't want to leave each other. <laughs> We've yeah. shared so deeply and everything. We've gotten so much out of this and there's so much more to learn and all this. And so then they form a learning circle. That often is how it turns out. I love this. I, I love communities. So, yeah, that really resonates. And you have the information for the um, meditation in communities you have on your website, right, Lama Tsomo? And I have it here, uh, namchak.org. Namchak.org. And Namchak is spelled N like Nancy, A M like Mary, Chak, C H A K, Namchak. Wonderful. I'll have the link on your podcast profile. And you are the co-founder of the foundation. I see. Yeah, that too. Before I ask you my final questions, would you like to add anything else or read a passage in your book? Uh, I don't think I have anything else to add. The passage that I could read is, it's just simple instructions for shamatha or uh, peaceful abiding or uh, tranquil abiding practice. And it's sort of the foundational one. And when I said it was simple, if you uh, hear these instructions, you'll see just how simple they are. So I could read them. Yes, please. Yes, yes. There are a few things I really like about the practice of shamatha, which translates from Sanskrit as tranquil stillness or peaceful abiding. I like the term tranquil abiding because when we Westerners start doing this practice, we tend to demand that our minds suddenly be still. We think meditation means sitting there and thinking of nothing for a half hour. The emphasis for me, though, is the tranquility of the experience. Shine, the Tibetan term for shamatha, literally means tranquil abiding. Even at night in our dreams, our minds are busy. Even when we finally get to sit on the beach, even between lifetimes, We've chased after thoughts, following them with the next thoughts, following those with words and actions for an eternity. Wouldn't it be nice to take a break from making these movies all the time? To take a real break and just rest? I get exhausted just at the thought of how long I've been ceaselessly dashing around, mentally or physically. We all need a vacation, right? Well, I take a real one every day in my morning practice session. Sit with your back in that supple yet straight position. Your pelvis is rotated slightly forward with your lower belly hanging forward a bit. If you can sit cross-legged on a firm cushion, that's ideal. Almost cross-legged with one foot in front is also good. If not, a chair with a firm seat is fine too. In that case, I'd recommend a thin, small, firm cushion at the small of your back. You can also try sitting in a knees-up position on the floor. Whichever position you choose, the main point is that your back has to be straight, without strain. Your shoulders should be back. Your hands are typically folded, one on top of the other, palms facing up in your lap. Your eyes are in a downward gaze, only half open. Your breath wafts in through your mouth, and your belly swells as it comes in, like filling a wineskin filling from bottom to top. On the out-breath, you reverse the process, letting the air out from top to bottom. 
The air floats gently through our mouths, swelling our lower bellies first, then it fills the rest of our trunks. We pause as long as is comfortable, then exhale. Gentle pause again. That's one. Continue that way till you've done 21 of those. Well, here you are, having assumed the position for tranquil abiding. Rest in your truly natural state, joyful, heartful, alive, and relaxed. That's it. I'm not kidding. Oh, if only our minds would do that for a nice long time. <laughs> it really does sound very, very simple. Something that's almost natural to do. Why not? Uh, to rest. Well, and as a word of encouragement, eventually it does become easier. It becomes much more natural and easy. I like doing anything for a long time, you know. So true. One of the things that I have learned to do, another practice, I guess I added, it was even when the thoughts are all over the place and coming, I'm noticing them even a little confused and negative, kind of accept them too. I kind of hold mm -hmm. the space for them as well. Mm -hmm. And that has helped me a lot, just breathing in and holding the space for even the things that I, it's unwanted. It's almost like accepting the unacceptable and then accepting that I can't accept the unacceptable. <laughs> right. If we're busy fighting them, then we're paying more attention to them than they deserve, you know? So yeah. <laughs> rather, uh, I have this image in my mind. Let's see what you think of it. It's like uh, a rope is constantly being pulled across my hand. You know, the, the brain is a, a thought generating organ, <laughs> right? And so it's generating these thoughts and it's like this constant uh, piece of rope uh, moving across my hand. So I can register that that's happening, but not really pay much attention to it, just to notice it. Or I can like grasp my hand onto it and, you know, start fighting with it or, you know, grabbing onto it and getting pulled away or whatever. But rather in this practice, we just leave the hand open and we notice we register and let it keep going. What do you love most about being in a human body? Haha. <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Oh, what is it? Mm, that's a really good question. Maybe it's the capacity to feel joy and know that I'm feeling it. Another question I have for you, the ending questions is, what is another word for enlightenment? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I happen to like the way uh, the word, if you, if you look in the, uh, into the etymology of the word in Tibetan, sanje, uh, what it means, it means clearing away and bringing forth. So clearing away the confused surface stuff and bringing forth our true nature, which we've been talking about a lot in this time. And my last question is, What are three things you wish everyone to experience before they lose the body, before they die? Oh, gosh. I wish that everybody would completely wake up. And literally, the word Buddha means one's, one who's awake. So I hope everybody wakes up 100% to the true reality. And then they'll have all the other things, which would be 
pure 100% love because it's pure 100% connection when you're the whole ocean, right? Connected to all the waves, all the ocean. Pure connection, pure joy, pure knowing, um, pure wisdom, you know, all of that. Um, so that's what I wish. Why not go for the best? I absolutely <laughs> agree. Why not? And I love these conversations for that reason because it really inspire us to, to go deeper. Thank you so much again, Lama Tsomo, for your beautiful presence, for this sense of peace that you leave here with me and the audience and everything you do, the way you do it, the beautiful intention behind it all. Thank you for being you. Thank you for being well, open to life. So thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for the work that you do to uh, spread joy and health and wisdom and happiness for people. Before we say goodbye again, where can we find more information about you, your books, products, services, and future projects? Really, everything is on the namchak.org website. So if you have that listed below, then they can see how to spell that because it's Tibetan. It literally means meteorite. So that's the name of our lineage is namchak, meteorite. I'll have the link on your podcast profile in a written form. Thank you so much again, and we'll talk again. Bye for now. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Lama Tsomo and her work, please visit namchak.org. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.